the Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 641 for September 23rd, 2018. Apple releases iOS 12, this week's wireless emergency alert system test is more than just a test, and 2019 will be the year of the robocall. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Coppice. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application, available now for Android and iOS for $1.99. Well, before we get into the news, let's talk about the new hardware from Apple that went on sale this week. So, uh, real quick update, um, I mentioned, I believe, on the show last week that I had ordered a phone, uh, the iPhone XS, uh, that was supposed to arrive this past Friday. Uh, T-Mobile shipped it ground. It got uh, the shipping update that came out on Thursday said it was going to arrive on Saturday. The phone never arrived. It is now Sunday. I'm still waiting for the phone. Hopefully it arrives tomorrow. Otherwise, the show next week is going to be very interesting because something different has happened (laughs) with my phone and uh, it is nowhere to be found. So we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, Next up, the Series 4 watch. So both uh, Joey uh, and uh, I got the watch. Um, We had to get it in a different way than we had talked about. Uh, We mentioned last week that B&H Photo uh, had a deal on these watches where uh, like any anything else they sell, uh, you don't have to pay sales tax unless uh, you're in the states of uh, New York and maybe New Jersey. And uh, the the watches, however, are still listed as uh, on pre-order or back-ordered, I guess is what it specifically says on the orders. Um, and uh, they also are taking off uh, the week starting today, September 23rd, uh, through uh, October 2nd or something like that, which for holidays. And uh, so ultimately, there's nothing that's going to be happening. So both Joey and I have canceled our orders with them and got our watches in different methods. Yeah. In addition, they didn't seem to ship any or receive any. And they're, you know, the comments from staff and they're saying they don't know how many they'll actually receive. So uh, the question is huge on when it would actually ship. So, yeah, it was not really uh, not a very great solution because might as well just order direct then from Apple. Yeah, which is what we did. And, you know, the uh, th- this came about today, Sunday. Uh, we were texting early this morning about it, and um, I was looking uh, through the uh, Apple uh, app and was able to find uh, a number of watches, although not, any, not the exact one that I had originally ordered, um, so I had to compromise with it, but was ultimately able to find one and did buy one. Um, I haven't activated or turned it even on yet because I'm still waiting to get the new phone and to do the whole thing all at once. Right. And I found the exact same one that I'd ordered uh, locally. Just actually the closest Apple store to me is the the one that had it in stock. So uh, that is the one I uh, went over to to grab uh, after your convincing uh, this morning, Mickey, because I did not want to go to the Apple store. I do not like going there because it uh, kind of just bugs me for some reason. But I did go and uh, get it. It was a nice day for a motorcycle ride. There you go. And, you know, mine was not a, the closest Apple store, not even the second or third closest Apple store, uh, but one that was uh, relatively easy to get to, about a 30-minute drive. Um, uh, the, the the one compromise that I had to make was um, they did not have the model that I wanted um, with uh, just the GPS. So I, I did buy one that has cellular built into it. Uh, and kind of did a quick justification that said, well, this is, uh, I'm going to have this one for probably three years. And at the very least, I, I have the option to activate it if I want to, which I probably will to start just to try it out. And if I don't want it or don't need it, then I can just deactivate it. And um, it was a $100 bet uh, or gamble, but ultimately the, based on the cost per use, um, you know, not a uh, not, not the end of the world. So um, anyway, more on the uh, experience with that on a future show for sure. Uh, but let's talk about first impressions uh, for you, Joe. 
Joey. Uh, so obviously you got got it the watch, uh, turned it on, got it all set up and everything. Uh, and I understand that uh, from a performance perspective, at the very least, um, relatively satisfied coming from your series. I think it was a series one watch that you had previously. Right. Yeah, because I got upgraded from Apple from my series zero to one last year with the uh, the the screen popping off, probably either due, a, due to a battery or just faulty adhesive. So they sent me a series one. So it's definitely um, uh, higher performance. It, it's noticeably faster. It, it, it draws the screen much quicker. You can scroll through the calendar faster. It uh, does the animations quicker and you can change between watch faces a, a heck of a lot faster. So that's what's uh, really great about that. Obviously, the size is bigger and the, the, the screen real estate is, you know, huge. It's bigger than your previous larger model uh, watch. And it's very noticeable because it goes much closer to the to the edges of the, the watch faces, uh, the watch now itself. Um, the gold color has been updated, like with all of the uh, Apple products, they dropped the rose gold option, but kind of made the gold color a little more pink. So it's kind of an in-between color between the old gold and the the rose gold color. And I do really actually like it. It's it's a nice, uh, rich color. So it's pretty nice. It is definitely a thinner watch that is noticeable. It's a little bit heavier. Um, but otherwise, it's basically the same Apple Watch. It's, uh, the you know, it's WatchOS 5, which I was running all week long on my previous watch. So it's um, you know, I'm already used to that, but of course this upgraded hardware does come with, uh, a couple of new watch faces that weren't previously available on my series, uh, one, which is the, 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 the ones they keep showing off in the, the ads with the, this, the tons of complications on there with the graphical, uh, versions of them. Yeah. The, uh, obviously when you're talking about watch faces, um, this is um, something that keeps getting iterated upon uh, with uh, the, these new every year with when the new watch OS comes out, we get something new. And, and with OS five now, um, you know, to your point, this uh, this new complication, um, you know, rich screen is, I think, something many will uh, you know be using just because you can get as much information as possible uh, onto it. And it's actually in a, a very well designed interface and it looks pretty nice uh, from what I've seen of it. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot, uh, a lot to choose from. It's actually getting, you know, with this particular watch face, it's actually a little bit hard to customize because there's so many choices uh, within the options for the complications. It's it's actually almost tough to pick uh, which ones you want because now they include air quality and UV indexes options as well, including weather conditions and the weather temperature, which shows plus and minus the high and low for the day. Um, so one of the other features of this newer Series 4 is the louder speaker uh, of course, including the louder Siri voice, which I did not have previously before, but it is noticeably louder and the, the quality is very decent on it. So it's a that's a great upgrade there as well. A better speaker and um, I think a better microphone as well. We did a test call earlier, uh, both on a phone call and on a FaceTime audio call. Uh, both were uh, very clear, um, you know, and generally, uh, you know, very acceptable for phone calls. Um, one of the interesting things that uh, we noticed and, and noted in that call was that it didn't necessarily matter whether or not Joey was holding his his the watch directly by his mouth or had it kind of down a little bit. It wasn't until it was probably, you know, somewhere at the, you know, the stretched out arm length distance uh, and then subsequently having the microphone pointing in the opposite direction because it's right underneath the uh, the digital crown, if I, crown, if I recall. Uh, it wasn't until you got to that point uh, where the, the, the quality degraded a little bit, but it was still audible. Uh, but the, kind of the rest of the, the range of motion with the arm, it was uh, very impressive just how uh, it, it remained very much the same, um, which 
which was nice because if you're talking on it and, and you're you know walking around or doing something, um, as long as you're not bumping it into things, you could potentially be having a conversation that sounded relatively consistent, which is a something that you would want in a situation like this. So um, that was a, it was nice to see that the call quality was uh, was very solid there. And you know I think the um, you know the performance going back to it um, is is something that for those uh, that had either a series zero or series one and have made this jump up now to the series four. Um, it, it's like anything when you go multiple generations on, on technology, you just, it, it feels like a much different experience. If you're uh, coming from the series three, maybe not as much, uh, but you still have a, a, a different size. And, and obviously the, 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 the thinness is different. The weight is different, all of that. So you're going to notice uh, something with it. So, uh, and one of the things you were initially concerned about was the, you know, going from a 38 to a 40 millimeter size. And, um, you know, has that, uh, has that been, you know, in your couple of hours of experience with it here, has that still been noticeable? And are you uh, still wishing that it would be, have been a smaller watch face at the 38 millimeters? Um, th- that's tough to answer. I do notice it for sure. I'm, I'm curious how it'll be in the next couple of days. I'll probably get used to it. Um, but it's, uh, I, I hope it doesn't get any bigger because at this point it's kind of really at the edge of my wrist and the watch band has to make a really sharp corner to get to the watch now. So if it gets any bigger, it won't really be comfortable to wear at that point. Yeah, that's a good point on the how the the watch band then sits based on you know your wrist and and so I mean it's it's one thing when you're talking about it in a device that is like a phone or a tablet or something and you're talking about the size of it uh, you know when relative to like how you hold it you know the size of your hand but when you're wearing something you want it to be sized appropriately and so to your you know that point if it gets bigger that's not going to work really well for you so uh, hopefully that remains a um, you know a, a, a size that they keep for a while. I guess. And of course, I could get a different watch band because I'm still using the original watch band that I got with my Series Zero watch way back when that uh, uh, it was like a few months after that came out. Yeah. So I've, I've still got that original band that I'm using with this one. Yeah, I, I do as well. Uh, this band has, has served me well. And uh, I did go with a different band with the new watch that I got. So I'll have to figure out if that if is the one that I use or if I just go back to this one or buy something totally different. I'm not not really sure, but uh, we'll figure that out as we go. Let's move on into the news. And first up, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which oversees the Wireless Emergency Alert or WEA system, announced that a test of the presidential alert system that had been scheduled a few weeks back has been pushed to October 3rd, citing the ongoing response efforts to Hurricane Florence. Now, the initial announcement was met with concerns from social media users who stated that a direct message from the president uh, to the nation could be used for political purposes, similar to how he uses the uh, Twitter account uh, that he has for those. And so uh, this issue uh, became as the, uh, up as the, issue, the alert, of course, uh, being a mandatory alert that would be received by users and no way to opt out of it. Now, uh, Jeremy Scott, the director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center's domestic, domestic Surveillance Project, said that without more information on the breadth of and reach of this system, there could be a risk of abuse due to its intrusive nature. Uh, according to Scott, the WEA is an intrusive alert system because it stops all forms of communications to your mobile device while the alert is processing. The emergency alert system, which uh, he deems is less intrusive, displays emergency messages on TV and radio. But public concerns have been offset by excitement from emergency management workers, uh, including Nick Crossley, the president of 
of the International Association of Emergency Managers in the U.S., saying, I think it's an outstanding tool in the toolbox. It's a great way to get notifications to anybody who has a cell phone. Now, of course, this is uncharted territory territory for many employees in the emergency response and management field, since it would be the first uh, wireless emergency alert from an American president since the EAS was put into place by the FCC back in 1997. In its history, there have only been three instances where the EAS alert has been sent, each of them tests of the system. The alert system was initially created to enable the president to be able to speak to the nation within 10 minutes through an audio message in case of a natural disaster or terrorist attack. The most recent national test took place nearly a year ago, September 28th. 2017. Now, uh, obviously, you've uh, probably seen these or maybe not on your device, but on somebody else's device. Um, these alerts are very interesting because they come through um, in a way that uh, is is relatively intrusive and, and you kind of get opted into them unless you go in and turn them off. Um, and so these are uh, the, the way that uh, most people are, are going about these or thinking about these is that it's not something that you're going to be able to to get out of. Um, and so there's even been um, this backlash uh, saying, you know, turn off your phone, you know, on this specific day so you don't get the alerts. Obviously, that is going to do nothing for you uh, because everybody else around you is going to get it on their phone. Right. So, of course, we need uh, some sort of communication system like this, I believe. It's, uh, you know, we don't all sit and watch uh, TV and listen to radio anymore. And, you know, of course, delivering it over the Internet's not terribly a viable uh, option either. So delivering it via uh, a mobile phone is probably the way to go. Uh, of course, all these other questions come around, you know, privacy, security, and of course, these alerts are very uh, crazy. I know like the very first time an Amber Alert went off, it was, you know, really obnoxious because, you know, if your device is on mute, it still overrides that. So um, you can definitely get into trouble because you can't uh, quiet these alerts down. So it's not something that uh, should be taken lightly. But of course, in times of emergency, who cares, right? Then that should be, um, you know, shouldn't matter at that point. Yeah. And there are a number of times when I've received an Amber Alert, but it, it's almost as it, it was almost been few enough where I could have counted them, um, you know, which is to say there are many more Amber Alerts than I receive um, that happen, of course. Uh, but that's the point is that they're localized and they're sent out to a specific, uh, you know, group of users, even if you're in an area um, that is not your home area, which is kind of what these are for is to get an emergency message out to people in that area, specific cell towers, as an example, uh, that are covering an area. So it does make sense for why they go out. But um, to have a test go out from the president, I think, is going to uh, be uh, be a little bit uh, divisive. And, uh, you know, people are going to just kind of they're going to they're going to feel a, a, a sense some people that is are going to feel a sense of um you know the, again like i mentioned in the story that it's an intrusive alert that needs to be uh carefully monitored and we don't want to see these coming out all that often right and of course they do you know it's probably good to test the system to see if it actually works so it, you know unfortunately you have to kind of test it and see if it works and and of course it'll annoy a bunch of people and it'll annoy me and it'll annoy uh, millions of others but uh, you do have to test these things to make sure that they actually work uh, when you need them to work. And that's the the unfortunate uh, circumstance. And, you know, mentioning the alerts again, there was the AMB alerts and also uh, weather alerts. I haven't seen one of those weather alerts in a really long time that would show flood warnings in my county, but that was about it. And that's the only alert I've ever seen. I have not seen severe thunderstorm warnings or anything else uh, associated with the weather alerts. No, and I, I, it's interesting, the flood warnings, because obviously those are, um, you know, in certain areas, you know, it's important to know that stuff in real time. 
Um, in other areas, like many urban areas, you don't have, uh, you've got sophisticated, um, you know, stormwater management uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's storm drain systems and whatnot that can handle most of that stuff. But uh, there are many parts of the country that don't have that. So uh, it just kind of depends on where you are, I guess, as well. Well, next up, a, a new trial between Qualcomm and Apple has begun at the U.S. International Trade Commission. Uh, and in this case, Qualcomm is seeking to ban the import of Apple phones over patent violations. Qualcomm alleges that the iPhone Intel-based modem violates two of its patents, and Apple's method for putting iPhones to sleep violates another. The full ITC panel is evaluating that early decision and will make a final ruling next month. Import bans are rare, and Apple would be able to appeal this decision. As Reuters mentions, Qualcomm is suing Apple in civil court over the same patents in this newer case. The ITC case has seen is seen as a test for the strength of these patents. A win for uh, at the ITC would boost Qualcomm's civil case against Apple. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai commented this week on the state of California's recently passed net neutrality rules. Speaking at the Maine Heritage Policy Center, Pai criticized uh, the state legislature. Uh, last month, California had passed laws that would require companies to supply internet services uh, that supply internet services to refrain from thr- throttle- throttling traffic, blocking content, or offering pair prioritization, similar to the laws the FCC enacted back in 2015. Pai called the bill radical, anti-consumer, and burdensome and suggested that the law will prevent people on California and California from taking advantage of free data plans, which let people stream content without incurring data fees. Nanny state California legislators apparently want to ban their constituents from having this choice, said Pai. Pai says California's move is a threat to the rest of the country. The interest in an interstate service and state boundaries is not recognized as information moves around. Due to the interstate nature of the Internet, Pai believes only federal law can regulate it. He says this is why efforts like California's are illegal. California's Governor Jerry Brown has yet to sign the legislation. Pai implied that the FCC will take action against California should the bill become law. Pi's Republican-led FCC has stripped away net neutrality regulations, uh, and uh, he also expects the industry to police itself with transparency, pushing the responsibility of enforcement action over to the FTC. Right. And of course, they threatened that uh, with this legislation where they are well, not the legislation, but when they did the uh, net neutrality rule removal, they said, we will go after any state who does this. So they're, of course, they're just following up with their uh, threat there. So we'll see what happens. Of course, his, um, you know, comments saying that it's burdensome. Of course, it is. There are many states that have laws regarding Internet transactions and uh, differences. So it's really not uncommon. Of course, this is kind of a big deal. But of course, uh, it seems like the uh, FCC wants to keep, uh, you know, the the net non-neutral. So that's what they're going to really push for. And I think, you know, California being as big a state as it is, uh, whatever whatever they're working on and what why they want this in, in this uh, case here is why they're going to go after California because they are one of the biggest states. Uh, you've got obviously we talked about in the past. There's been back and forth on this. You've got attorneys general from many states around the country that have been involved in this, uh, and also some uh, you know other lawsuits from uh, various other parties that have come up as well. So it is not just uh, you know a single state that is uh, getting into this here. It's it's a, a lot of the country, and so um, it's some very interesting um, you know times ahead of us as we figure out what this is going to mean for us, and uh, ultimately if the FCC's changes are going to stick. Well, nearly half of all cell phone calls next year are going to come 
from scammers. The protection projection that is, according to First Orion, which is a company that provides phone carriers and their customers caller ID and call blocking technology, reveals an explosion of incoming spam calls over the past two years. So back in 2017, 3.7% of total calls were considered spam. That's up to 29% this year in 2018 and projected to be over 45% by early 2019. Year after year, the call scam epidemic bombards consumers at record-breaking levels, surpassing the previous year, and scammers increasingly invade our privacy at new extremes. This, according to the chief executive and head data scientist at First Orion, Charles Morgan. Uh, Many, of course, of the calls are being done using a scheme known as neighborhood spoofing. So that's where a caller ID is manipulated so that the phone number that comes through is masked, and instead it looks like it's coming from a phone call based locally. So the person looking at the caller ID will see the number and see that it matches their own area code and maybe their own exchange as well and appears like a neighbor is calling them. Uh, but because the number appears familiar, uh, a person is more likely to then answer that call. And then subsequently, more than half of all complaints received by the FCC, 200,000 of them are about unwanted calls. The FCC said Americans receive about 2.4 billion unwanted automated calls each month. That's according to the 2016 estimates. So you can imagine what that number is going to look like here as we go into 2019. Charles Kennedy, a senior adjunct fellow at the tech at policy think tank Tech Freedom, said the problem of spam calls is difficult to solve because many of the offenders are hard to track down. It's illegal for telemarketers to call someone whose number is on the do not call registry unless they have an existing business relationship or the phone owner's explicit written permission. But Kennedy said that people who ignore that list or engage in deception are often hard to hold to account. They make calls from abroad, block their numbers before they reach to their consumers, uh, obscure their locations, uh, and place a tremendous number of calls rather than a legal solution, uh, technologically rather than legal solutions hold more promise, Kennedy said, to develop ways to block these numbers. Uh, however, certain apps can block calls from unknown uh, scammers, but first Ryan noted that the tools can be ineffective if fraudulent callers use numbers that aren't already blacklisted. So to combat automated calls and caller ID spoofing, the FCC has allowed phone carriers to block calls that may be illegal and has taken a- action against scammers, issuing hundreds of millions of dollars and fines. Right. And I think for me, the number of uh, spam calls is probably more like 75 or 80 percent of the incoming calls I receive. I do not receive that many phone calls. Uh, so most of them are illegitimate. And really, I basically never answer the phone, of course, unless the contact is in my uh, phone or I actually know I'm expecting a call. And hopefully the area code is somewhat in the neighborhood of where I'm expecting it to come from. And otherwise, I just do, do not answer. And of course, I receive a ton of those uh, ones that match the prefix and the the area code and the prefix uh, of my number, uh, and of course similar ones as well. So what's I find interesting is that um, I've got a a California area code on my primary phone number. Um, I use that for really just personal calling um, and in some some personal people that I know in business, but it's it's mostly a I'll call it a personal cell phone number. That number uh, and that area code. Um, I get a fair number of these neighborhood uh, scam calls, neighborhood uh, spoofed calls. And um, the 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 great thing about that is that because I don't use that number or hand that number out to people, anytime I get a number from my area code, I realize very instantly that it's not for me. It's a spam call and, and I, I don't answer it. It doesn't make it less annoying that you have to deal with a phone call coming in, but at least I don't answer it and have to deal with it from there. Um, the... 
the interesting thing though is I have a Google Voice number that I use. Oh, and by the way, that was a Google Voice number to you know, when it started its life, and then I ported it over and now uh, to Verizon, and now it's over at T-Mobile. Uh, but what's most interesting is that the Google Voice number I use for um, my primary work cell phone number, if you will, uh, doesn't get these calls on it. And so I don't understand how uh, scammers are, are choosing which numbers to call. At one point, I just figured they were just grabbing all of the area code exchanges, grabbing all of the uh, or the area codes and then all the exchanges that they could and uh, just going from there. But it seems like there's got to be something else going on. Maybe they're somehow have a list of, of phone numbers that are activated at the carriers or something like that. And that's what they're going after. I think they have that list. And then also, I think Google actively blocks those calls. So I think it's kind of a two, uh, it's two factors there. Why the Google voice number does not receive uh, spam calls. And I uh, uh, see the same thing, Mickey. I do not receive uh, scam calls on my Google voice number. Yeah, and it's it's hard to tell. I mean, unless you do a little bit of digging, if the number itself where it's come through, you can go into your Google voice account online and you can see incoming calls that have come in. But on your phone itself, I mean, you're just, it's it's not like it shows come, coming from Google Voice uh, unless you have it specifically set up that way, uh, which is a whole separate topic. They just introduced recently the ability in Google Voice to re- make and receive all of your calls over uh, Voice over IP. So you, you don't have to, um, it, I guess you could have used something like a Hangouts in the past to send and receive your calls. But now if you go into to settings, um, there's an option under calls that says make and receive calls, and you can either choose use carrier only or prefer Wi-Fi and mobile data. And when you do that, um, it's it's kind of nice because it, it then shows up as the call coming in from Google Voice. Uh, I did a little bit of testing on it, and I did not uh, like the quality of the calls uh, nearly as much as uh, are just over a regular telephone. It's not as consistent. Um, and, and so ultimately I, I turned it off, but, uh, it's, it's a really nice thing to have, especially if you're like traveling internationally and, um, you could easily just have it set up so that all of your, uh, you'd switch it over from, you know, use the carrier to using data. If you've got a, a, a free data plan, but you don't have free calling. Um, and then, you know, do something like forward your phone, uh, your, your actual phone number over to it or something like that. And, and then just do everything over that. But, um, I, I do find it really interesting that, uh, at this point we are, um, you know, we are able to make that distinction. Uh, and when it comes to spam calls back to it, um, uh, you're, you're kind of left to then figure out when the call comes in, you've got that 25 seconds or so to make the decision of whether or not you're going to answer it. But like you, Joey, I, I tend to not, if I don't know the person's number, unless I'm expecting, you know, calls, uh, from people that I, I don't know, but otherwise it's just, it's, it's annoying. And, um, even known calls uh, or calls that are not, uh, spam calls, uh, but you know, perhaps lists from companies that I've I've not been able to get off of, and even they were like not robocalls. Um, I will oftentimes block those numbers as well, just because it's you know you tell somebody to take you you off of a list and they don't, and it's like, well, okay, I'll figure it out then for you. So um, anyway, interesting uh, that uh, you know we're talking about this fifty percent uh, you know number or mark um, that uh, is going to be. Uh, I'm sure we're going to blow right through it as we go through the rest of next year. Uh, next up, AT&T and its prepaid brand Cricket Wireless have filed a third lawsuit against suspected traffickers of cell phones. So the lawsuit is like two others that they have already filed against businesses and individuals in New Jersey and Florida. Trafficked phones are typically purchased in bulk from AT&T or Cricket at a discount and then unlocked without permission by AT&T or Cricket. 
The buyers often discard the original packaging and sell the phones at higher prices to make a profit. AT&T says this practice negates the subsidy that AT&T prepaid and Cricket intend to benefit the consumer. A new complaint was filed this month in the U.S. District Court for the District of New York against Cell Intel. And so that was the latest filing of lawsuits. Uh, next up, Google and T-Mobile are working together to ensure that T-Mobile customers' uh, locations are more accurately pinpointed when calling 911 emergency services. So about 80% of the annual 240 million 911 calls in the U.S. are made via cell phones, where landlines can point to an exact location for emergency services. Cell phones often provide only a general location that can be off by hundreds of feet. Google and T-Mobile said they've been looking to solve the problem for four years. And moving forward, Android devices running on T-Mobile's network will use the Rapid SOS system. And this internet protocol-based pipeline can share location data with 911 centers quickly and securely. This newer system integrates the 911 center's existing software to more finely pinpoint the location. This user location data cannot be used for non-emergency purposes, and 911 centers will only have access to location uh, location of that user during 911 emergency calls. Rapid SOS is operating in about a thousand of the country's almost 6,000 911 call centers. And by law, wireless network operators are required to locate callers within 50 meters 80% of the time. Uh, but that won't be until 2021. Google and T-Mobile claim Rapid SOS reduces the average location radius uh, from more than 500 feet down to 122 feet. And within this range, uh, this is the mandated range by the FCC. Apple adopted Rapid SOS with the release of iOS 12, allowing iPhones to provide similarly accurate location data to 911 call centers as well. In device news, Samsung Thursday announcing the Galaxy A7 in addition to its mid-range roster that is the first to feature three cameras on the back of a phone. The triple camera array includes a 24-megapixel main sensor at an f1.7 aperture, an 8-megapixel wide-angle sensor at f2.4, and a 5-megapixel depth-sensing camera at f2.2 for bokeh and other effects. Uh, The camera has the ability to detect scenes and adjust automatically to create better photos. It relies on a metal and glass design and features the Infinity display measuring 6 inches with full HD plus resolution on the front. Dolby Atmos ensures the A7 delivers a great sound experience. A 2.2 gigahertz octa-core processor powers the phone and ships with either 4 or 6 gigs of RAM uh, and and 64 or 128 gigs of storage. It's got a 3300 milliamp hour battery and a number of radios, including Bluetooth 5, Wi-Fi, GPS, GPS, NFC, Category 6 LTE, and a fingerprint reader located on the side edge of the device and a 24 megapixel selfie camera that allows for selfie focus shots with studio effects and Samsung AR emoji. Samsung plans to sell the A7 in Asian markets first, followed by European and other markets. Samsung didn't say if it intends to bring the A7 to the U.S., and the company didn't specify which LTE bands the phone supports. Samsung recently launched the Galaxy A6 in the U.S. Well, the Apple iPhone, Apple Watch, and AirPods are now among the first, or not, that is, among the first products that will be subject to the new 10% tariff directed against imports from China. So this tariff, levied by President Donald Trump, covers around $200 billion of goods shipped into the U.S. Fitbit said its products were spared from this round of tariffs as well, but some from Cisco, Dell, and Hewlett-Packard necessary for cloud computing equipment did fall on the list of taxed products. The 10% tariff goes into effect on September 24th and raises to 25% on January 1st, 2019. 
Trump has threatened to expand the tariffs to an additional $267 billion worth of goods. In that case, uh, we would have Apple products uh, on that list no longer exempted, uh, and those additional fees would likely be passed through to the consumers. There are other phones that would make the list as well, including those from Samsung and LG. Well, Verizon Thursday announced the Gizmo Watch. This is a second-generation smart wearable targeting children ages 3 to 11. Yes, another child's wearable. This device primarily meant to serve as a location tracker for parents. Using the free Android or iOS app, parents can view their child's real-time location, set geofences, and receive alerts should the child stray outside the designated zones. Parents can also control the device's uptime to ensure that it is quiet during school hours. The wearable runs on Verizon's LTE network and can receive calls from up to 10 parent-approved numbers. The Gizmo Watch includes 20 preset text messages that kids can send to their contacts. Kids will be able to track their steps as well as use a voice charger changer app for fun. Uh, Verizon says Gizmo Watch battery will last three to four days. It is available starting immediately, $180 and a $5 monthly fee for connectivity. In software news, Apple on Monday made iOS 12, the latest version of its mobile operating system, available to the general public. iOS 12 introduces a number of new features and tools, such as screen time, then to help people manage the time they spend on their mobile devices each day. It also introduces support for a group notification or for grouped notifications, letting people view, manage, and dismiss multiple notifications at once. The update gives the iPhone 10, 10s, 10s Max, and 10R the ability to create Memoji, customized and animated emoji stickers that resemble the user's face. People can customize hair color and style, eye color, accessories such as glasses and more. With iOS 12, CarPlay, Apple's in-car system, third-party apps uh, such as Google Maps will function so you don't have to use the stock apps that were included in the traditional original CarPlay operating system. Other features include grouped FaceTime, group FaceTime chats, dozens of new emoji, and improved Do Not Disturb. Apple says iOS 12 will work on iPhones back to the iPhone 5S. And of course, that's the phone that supports 64-bit processing, whereas the iPhone 5 did not. So that's why the uh, the limit is going there. But uh, group FaceTime chats is not available yet. That is uh, pushed off because they obviously couldn't get it to work or something like that. So I think that's coming soon. Uh, one of the things I noticed with iOS 12 on the iPad is that they changed the interface quite a bit to match the iPhone 10 style interface with the swipes. The, they move the control center around. And now you do not need the home button at all to interface with the iPad. So you can do the swipe up gestures uh, to unlock and to open and to get the, the um, you know, the keypad to, uh, to, to unlock the device. And then also they've changed the multitasking view to when you swipe up to where if you swipe up short, you'll get the home screen. If you swipe up long, you'll get the multitasking screen. So they've uh, obviously modified that. There's been rumors a Face ID iPad is on the way. And boy, with the new interface, it sure feels like that's the way they're going with the iPad. Yeah, if there's no reason to use the, the home button anymore, then uh, yeah, absolutely. It seems like that that's on the way. Um, would love to see devices that are um, the uh, of a screen size that we have today, but a smaller footprint. Uh, but like we've seen with the watches, I believe we're going in the other direction, keep the overall physical size the same and uh, increase the screen size. So um, the, uh, you know, what I believe we'll see is uh, a, a edge to edge screen, just like with the phones with a notch uh, for the camera and the rest of the face ID equipment 
And uh, it seems like that's that's probably what it's going to look like. Um, and I guess then you're just going to be stuck uh, like you are with the phone uh, where you don't have a contiguous screen unless you shrink it down and, and have a black bar on either side. Right. And I don't think they're going to have a notch in the iPad screens. I, I think they'll be one of the bezels will be big enough to ho- house those sensors. So that, that's my gut feeling. Mm. Well, either way, it's going to be uh, definitely to your point. As soon as you mentioned that to me this week, I, I figured it out. And it's actually kind of nice to, to be able to do all of that uh, gesturing on there. Uh, so I do actually appreciate that it's in there now. Right. Uh, iOS 12's uh, interface for the iPad is much, much better than iOS 11. Right. That is that is absolutely for sure. I, I feel like they've done, you know, iOS 12, iOS 12 has, has actually been very stable. I've been impressed with it since, uh, um, you know, we've going back to, you know, iOS 6, iOS 7, you know, where we had these really very buggy releases. Uh, it seems like we finally are have something that is is worthy of an update that is you you don't tell somebody don't do this yet because you're going to experience all these bugs. It's actually working quite well. And uh, I've had uh, no real issues to talk about over the last, uh, you know, five days since it got released. Yeah, I haven't either. And of course, the speed on my uh, iPhone SE is is noticeably improved. As they promised, uh, the camera launching is definitely uh, improved, which really is helpful. And I, I actually launched the camera quite a bit, so it's a very nice, uh, nice to have that launch quicker. On the flip side, I feel like the battery life does suffer uh, with the new operating system, as it usually does when you get a new OS. Um, and so I, I'm not real happy about that. Uh, but uh, just got to keep an eye on that and just see how it goes over uh, the upcoming days and uh, make a decision on whether or not it's uh, it's of, of any other, t- you know, something that I'm doing with this device or if there's some other issue there going on. But either way, uh, it is out and available for download for free. Now, on the watch side, Apple has made watchOS 5 available as well with a range of new features. It includes new social powers, allowing people to challenge one another to various workouts or closing rings. It also brings third-party access to Siri, letting Siri on the Apple Watch surface content or suggestions for apps other than those made by Apple. It, the platform gains support for WebKit, so WebKit views will make new content easier to view on the watch. It also gains a walkie-talkie function for quick conversations with other Apple Watch owners. WatchOS 5 also add support for podcasts. Other features include student ID cards, notification tuning, UV index and weather, a new emoji picker, auto workout sensing, background audio mode, support for stocks, and customized world clocks. It's free to download from Apple for watches going back to 2014, uh, meaning the Series 1 devices, but does not include the, uh, not, not 2014, 2016, uh, but it does not include the original Apple Watch known as Series 0 that was released in 2015. Google on Tuesday said iPhone users can now opt for Google's Maps instead of Apple Maps when using their CarPlay-equipped automobile. Uh, As we mentioned in the update, CarPlay uh, is now supporting these third-party applications, uh, similar to uh, what you would uh, expect to see with uh, any uh, application support on one of the uh, iOS devices. Google says Maps via CarPlay supports seamless transitions from Maps on the iPhone to Maps via CarPlay. Point-to-point navigation uh, with real-time traffic updates and rerouting is now available. Offline Maps for use in spotty coverage areas and support for saved lists and favorites is also there. Uh, Google says Maps should be available in most vehicles that include CarPlay, though it suggests users check online to view Apple's list 
of compatible vehicles. In Android software, Google this week said it added tools to its Family Link service, giving parents more control over how their kids use their mobile devices. So to start, Family Link is expanding to teens. The service initially targeted children under the age of 13, but it now supports those over the age of 13, making it possible for parents to manage screen time, veto apps, and turn off features. Google says that parents can supervise their teens' existing Google account. The teens will have the power to turn off supervision if they wish. This generates a parental alert. Family Link is also adding better support for Chromebooks so parents can manage their teens and preteens by restricting websites and account settings. Soon, parents will also be able to set screen time limits and manage Chromebook apps. Google says these features are rolling out over the next few weeks. Now, on the Android Auto side, Google this week announced a partnership with Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi in an alliance planning to embed the Android operating system into cars starting in 2021. The alliance will add Android to its cars dashboard navigation system, featuring Google Maps with turn-by-turn directions, access to automotive applications in the Google Play Store, and the ability to answer calls and texts control music playback, perform searches, and issue voice commands via Google Assistant. In addition to the in-car integrations, the Alliance plans to add Google's cloud-based systems to further enhance their cars through unique user interface elements and specific features to each of the three brands. The UI will be built on top of Android, and the Alliance Intelligent Cloud will offer secure connectivity, data management, and over-the-air updates and remote diagnostics. The Alliance said the system will be compatible with both Android and iOS mobile devices, though no word on which models will first adopt the OS. Apple updating its Apple Music application for Android this week, improving the usefulness in the car. Android device owners can now access their Apple Music service through Android Auto in the car. It offers the ability to search by lyrics using a few words to find songs. The app also includes a new artist page, letting people view artist information and play artist hits with a tap and in the Friends Mix, which shows a list playlist of songs liked by friends. Finally, Apple Music for Android now includes the top 100 songs from around the world. Apple Music, free to download from the Google Play Store. And OnePlus this week began delivering Android 9 Pie to its flagship phone, the OnePlus 6. This company has been testing a beta version of the new operating system from Google for several weeks. Android 9 Pie carries with it a brand new user interface, adaptive battery support, a revised gesture navigation, and it reworks the Do Not Disturb mode as well as the new gaming mode. The update also improves call and text notifications and allows people to adjust the accent color. Lastly, the update includes a September security patch from Google. It's available for free to owners of the OnePlus 6 to download and install, and it's rolling out to all users over the next couple of days. And finally, in software, Twitter says it will soon give users the ability to view tweets uh, in the order in which they were published. This generally means in reverse chronological order, which is how Twitter operated until 2016 when it introduced the algorithmic feed. The company made the announcement in a thread on Twitter. So they said, we're working on new ways to give you more control over your timeline. And we've learned that when showing our the best tweets first, people find Twitter more relevant and useful. However, we've heard feedback from people who at times prefer to see their most recent tweets. Our goal is that with the timeline to balance showing you the most recent tweets with the best tweets you'll likely care about, but we don't always get that balance right. So we're working on providing you with an easily accessible way to switch between timeline of tweets and the most relevant for you and a timeline of your latest tweets. Well, I remember when that changed because I did use Twitter and kind of liked it. Uh, but once I changed it, that that was it for me. I just totally gave up because it completely ruined that's basically the reason for Twitter, at least what I was using it for. So um, yeah, that's just ancient history now and they've lost me. So it's uh, 
Uh, it's something I can't believe they never had as an option uh, when they made this change. Yeah, on the flip side, um, I actually kind of appreciate the algorithmic uh, process because I'll go into Twitter, I don't know, half a dozen times a week, so maybe once a day. Uh, and uh, when I do, I'm, I'm not scrolling down to see all of the tweets and I actually appreciate seeing just kind of the highlighted ones and that it brings me kind of then to the, maybe some particular searches for different users that I want to read more on or whatever have you. And so I find that it's, uh, it's actually fairly useful, but, um, I'm also one of those people that probably follows too many people and, uh, could use a dose of unsubscribing or unfollowing, uh, to pare it down to the people that I just care about the most. Well, questions and comments this week. We've got a couple. Uh, We'll kick it off with a voicemail from Ralph. Hey, Mickey and Joey. Hi, this is uh, Ralph in Las Vegas. Listening to your latest podcast, you guys are talking about the whole Apple dual SIM thing. Uh, Yeah, that's not really a new deal. Uh, As as I'm sure you guys know, I'm using an Android phone have for a while, and I got a OnePlus uh, 6 is the current one, but I've had OnePlus 5s and 5Ts. I've been running dual SIMs for a while, and my use case is I'm on T-Mobile, as my primary, and I have a business account with Verizon that gives me one of these hotspots. And uh, when I travel into rural areas where T-Mobile doesn't really have very good coverage, I just toss a second SIM in my OnePlus phone, and I set it up for data. So I can use Verizon network uh, when I'm out in the boonies for data or voice over IP calls like you know Google Voice or whatever have you, and it works great. And it switches between the two very seamlessly, and it works fine. So I keep it on T-Mobile primarily because their data is much, much faster here in Vegas than Verizon is, but Verizon covers the uh, fringe area. So it works very well, uh, very seamless, and uh, it does what I need to do. Anyways, I thought I'd give you that comment. Uh, Have a good day. Thanks. Ralph, thanks very much for the voicemail. So uh, actually very glad that you sent this in and and commented on this, that, you know, we are, uh, you know, in talking about the, the new Apple devices, you know, under the um, kind of the umbrella of, you know, a new feature uh, with the dual SIM capabilities. That is not a new feature to other manufacturers. And so having your useful, uh, your, your use case, I should say, I think is going to be very useful for people to hear. Uh, as a T-Mobile customer myself, I've got a Verizon account uh, in, a, in a business account, just like you do. And so I've, I've actually been thinking about this ability to be able to use the SIM uh, that I have on my Verizon account in the new iPhone. The problem that I have uh, come up with is the devices that are shipping from carriers that are not Verizon, that are not fully paid for, are locked to the carrier in which you purchase the device. So it, it's it stands that to reason that you would you would want to have is um, a carrier your phone locked to your you know, network so that someone wouldn't take it to another network and and use it if they had bought it on your network. Uh, but in the case where you've got this dual SIM capability, um, it, it becomes much less useful to even have it if you're going to lock it and not let me use it. So um, I'm very interested to see once I receive this, how this is going to work. And um, I, I, I really would like to, you know, figure out what the process would be to uh, to get T-Mobile to unlock that um, you know that SIM slot on the device uh, without having it fully paid off because uh, it's just it's it's otherwise not reasonable uh, you know to have this feature in there and I guess you know on the Android side they're not financing a lot of the devices that have the dual SIM capabilities because they're mostly international devices and you're probably paying for them outright um, and it's not even that I wouldn't don't want to pay for the the full device 
it's just when you've got a no interest loan like this, it, it just, why not? And it sits on your phone bill and why not? So um, I just would, I, I don't know, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I'm hopeful that uh, one of the carriers will figure out a way to do it and say something to the effect of, I think we talked about it last week, let's just keep the phone locked to that carrier. You can't change uh, the eSIM, um, you know, registration to another carrier. That's got to stay the same. The other slot is unlocked. But if the account uh, on that eSIM is not active, then the SIM slot doesn't work or something like that. There's got to be some way to get around that. Uh, and like anything else, um, you know, if you want to jailbreak the phone or if you want to unlock it separately, uh, that's kind of your prerogative to do. But I, I don't know. That, that's kind of my thinking on this because I, I, I love this idea that you could have a Verizon SIM in the iPhone and use that just for data when you need it. Absolutely. No, it makes all the sense in the world. So hopefully carriers will maybe unlock the slot and maybe it is separate. Uh, we, you know, we just don't know yet. There's a lot of questions here and how that's uh, how it's going to work. As you remember with, you know, carriers used to sell locked phones all the time. And then uh, they started kind of laxing their policies a bit. If you just call them up and say, I want it unlocked because I'm going to travel internationally, they would just unlock it for you. So uh, maybe it'll be like that again. So I'm not quite sure uh, what to expect. Yeah, maybe. It, it really seems unlikely. You know, I, I feel like I'm going to be st- kind of in a rock and a hard place here. Uh, you know, the other part of it is you, you wonder if there's going to be, you know, is there going to be a middle ground at some point with this? So it's not just an all or nothing. You know, are they going to, after a certain period of time, right? So you can pay off 50% of it or something like that. But um, just because, again, it's, it's just not reasonable if you're financing a phone uh, to say you can't use this piece of the, the the functionality on the device so um anyway that that's a whole nother story that we're, we're not going to fix or solve on this uh but uh, something uh, a very interesting concept ralph and so again thank you very much for calling in with that finally today we've got a question from patrick and he says hello tcpj uh, why are usb type c chargers usually described in watts like 18 30 or 45 watts and the older type a chargers are in amps like one amp or 2.4 amps also i have a chromebook that uses type c for charging and it comes with a 45 watt charger i tried a 12 watt charger and it works just fine it did take of course longer to fully charge the device but my question is then will it damage the laptop or the charger by doing so i like the idea of pairing it with the tiny charger for portability also does the longer six foot type c cable matter for charging purposes great show and thanks patrick well let's let's i guess start with talking about this watts versus amps thing so um you know generally what we're talking about here is when you get a a charger uh like a 12 watt charger um you know you are you are taking that charger that charger is translating to um it would be a 2.1 amp charger because it's uh based on um how that conversion works and so I guess potentially they just decided to do things like saying, you know, it's an 18 watt charger versus saying it's a, uh, what would that be? It would be like a three amp or something like that. I'm not really sure why they've decided to do this other than when you're, when you're looking at bigger laptop chargers, um, that's how they've always been called out by Watts and not amps. Yeah. And I think that's why it's just a marketing thing because it's just a simple equation to convert between the two. So you take the voltage and the times the amperage and you get the wattage. It's just, you know, super simple equation. So that's, uh, why. And I think they have the bigger, 
uh, numbers because the bigger numbers look better. Um, and of course, you know, the one amp was the, what is it, the five watts and the uh, iPad one is what, uh, 12 to 10 watts, depending on which models and years mm -hmm. you have. So um, the other question with the six feet cord, six feet is probably pretty decent. You don't want to probably try to push the 45 or, you know, or more over a cord that long unless it's a heavy gauge uh, cord specifically designed for charging that much because uh, DC low voltage uh, is really length dependent for higher power. So the more amps you're trying to push through a, uh, a cord at, on, uh, on DC, it increases the resistance quite a bit and you get quite a bit of a voltage drop over that. So you do want to be a little bit uh, uh, careful with what you're doing as far as length of cord with higher wattages when you're charging. Yeah, and, and the other part of it is the cheaper cords that you buy, a lot of these third-party cords aren't designed to mitigate that resistance um, and the voltage drop, and so you're going you're gonna to just see longer charger time. So OEM cords, as an example, um, like the, the iPad uh, or the, the Apple cords um, that are six foot versus three foot, they're designed um, to, to not have that occur. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that answers that, um, uh, you know, onto the, the question about, um, using a lower powered charger, uh, with your Chromebook, um, the, the answer on, on whether or not it's going to cause any damage generally, no, you're not going to cause damage by charging it with a lower powered charger. Um, you know, it's, it's generally the, the reverse of that. Um, so think about it in this way on an Apple, um, iPad, you know, it comes with a 12 watt charger, which is, is 2.1 amps. Um, you can use an iPhone charger, which is one amp, um, and it just takes longer to charge it. Uh, it doesn't cause any, uh, you know, negative effects or anything like that. Um, you know, and frankly, I actually have, um, a device that I use, uh, myself, um, that uh, is plugged into a, uh, an iPad that is used as a, just a monitor, a television monitor. Uh, and it's just at the, the, the five Watts, um, or excuse me, five amps five watts that's right one amp and uh it doesn't um it doesn't cause any negative effects to that battery um again on the other side though you're going to generate more heat uh, if you're charging it faster um and that is what's bad for batteries heat is bad for batteries so that can cause some degradation over time um and also the other part of it is the device software might not be optimized for the higher power charging and uh, as a result the calibration of the battery might get thrown off um, I have seen that happen regularly with the iPad if I'm only using that USB-C charger as an example, which I think is 29 watts. And uh, and it will certainly charge the device nice and fast. Uh, and if you just do it every once in a while, it's no big deal uh, and it charges it. But as I've been you know, lamented to Joey on a number of occasions, um, the, the thing will get out of whack. And uh, I will won't be able to charge it up past a certain percentage, which is in incredibly infuriating. And then as a result of it, it's like the iPhone just stops accepting a charge altogether. Uh, and then it just starts dropping. So even though the device is plugged in, you it won't take any more charge because it's uh, it, and, it, and it just it doesn't even stay topped up. It's just it's a very weird phenomenon. So um, but uh, it's a. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it on the other side, though, uh, especially when you're talking about a 12 watt charger. Uh, you're still you're going to be you know doing two, uh, just over two amps, which I think is going to be enough to uh, to do what you need to do. And it sounds like again, if you're doing it for portability, it's only going to be every once in a while anyway. So all of these factors lead up to the uh, the conclusion that you'll be just fine doing that. Yeah, I would think so. As long as it's a quality charger, make sure it doesn't get too hot. 
uh, and stays too hot because that would be the only thing you do. You know, it, it, if it feels really too hot, then that that's probably a problem. Uh, you're probably just fine with 45 as well, but 12 watt should be uh, it should be perfectly acceptable. And of course, we're still kind of in the infancy of USB-C charging, e even though it's been out for a few years. They're still getting all the communications uh, worked out, and they're still improving how they do that. You did, you brought up a really good point here with um, the actual charger itself and making sure it's not getting too hot. I have actually noticed that when charging on the five uh, the five watt charger um, with an iPad, it uh, it gets really really hot. Uh, so yeah, do definitely be careful with that. Um, and uh, you know, especially if you're using a third party um, you know charger, uh, just make sure that you're you know do a, at least a little bit of research on it to make sure that you're comfortable with it. And um, you know, it's it's a Chromebook, so your 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 risk of of uh, damaging something expensive is a little bit mitigated. Um, I would also you know still be upset if I were to you know have a, a Chromebook uh, you know get destroyed as a result of a charger. But um, generally, I think you'll be just fine. Right. And of course, you know, really low quality chargers, they can be a fire risk. So that's just the only other thing to watch out for, which is probably not related to this at all. But it's definitely something to be careful for with any uh, power supply that you have anywhere. Yeah, and that's right. And, and I mean, there's, uh, you know, when components get manufactured, um, you know, especially in the early stages, there are a lot of knockoffs that are out there. Um, and, and even after after they've matured, there's still a lot of knockoffs out there. But, um, you know, in USB-C is 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 starting to gain traction. I mean, the vast majority of mid-end and uh, mid-range and premium devices are coming with USB-C now. And it's nice to see that, uh, you know, laptops are as well. Uh, this convergence of a, a single port uh, for charging of everything is, is very convenient. I've felt that way about Lightning for a while. Uh, and with the exception of, uh, you know, just the, uh, you know, the, the things like a light, a, a watch that doesn't use lightning, everything else does. And so I, I can appreciate that. And so on the flip side of that, let's see USB-C take over and be that, um, connector that everybody uses moving forward. Well, uh, if you have any questions for us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us email to questions at the cell phone junkie.com or give us a call 650-999-0524 and we'll get whatever you have to say on a future show. Joey, thank you very much as always for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at the cell phone junkie.com. <laughs>